This morning we continue our series on abounding in love. They're a series from First uh, Thessalonians. Uh, this morning, look at chapter. Looking at chapter five, we have one more sermon from this book, from this series, and that will be next Sunday from chapter four. And that before we move into Lent, then on uh, February twenty-five. Uh, again, this morning, if you desire to, you can fill out the notes where it says message notes. You can fill out the blanks or take take your own notes on the that page in your bulletin. I will first uh, read the scripture from uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verses 1 to 11 and that will be on the on the overhead on the PowerPoint and it's found also on page 1171 in your pew bibles uh, verses 1 to 11 from chapter 5 Now brothers and sisters about times and dates, we do not need to write to you. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, peace and security, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in the darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, Get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer with wrath or to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as, in fact, you are doing. Let us pray together. Thank you, O God, for these words to us. For your word that instructs us, that teaches us, we pray that as this scripture is open to us, that your spirit would take those words to our own hearts and minds and our lives would be changed, our lives would be transformed so that we may come more into your likeness. Thank you, O God. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Now, during my lifetime, there has been a significant interest in the return of Christ. Back in the 1970s, a man by the name of Hal Lindsey wrote a book entitled The Late Great Planet Earth. And that book sold millions of copies. In fact, the New York Times reported that that book 
that sold more copies than any other book throughout the 1970s. And in that book, Hal Lindsey told a reader that Christ would return, that the rapture would take place in 1988. The book came out in the 70s, the early 70s, so about 20 or 18 to 20 years later, he said the rapture would take place. And that particular book inspired a, the writing a whole, of a whole series of books called the Left Behind series, authored by LaHaye and Jenkins. But there have been other event, events that in, in our Anabaptist, in our Mennonite and Brethren history, that tell us there is significant interest in the end times. In preparing for the sermon, I became aware that in 1864, a group of brethren came together and they were studying the book written by William Thurman, who was a minister. And he claimed to unlock the secrets of the biblical book of Daniel. And Frank Ramirez reports that this group of brethren on September 27 came together and climbed a haystack so they would be closer to heaven when Jesus returned. And they waited, they waited, and they implored, and they, they prayed to God, waiting for Jesus to come back as they were on this haystack. And despite their fervent prayers and their belief in the biblical calculations that Pastor Thurman had given to them, in spite of that, nothing happened. Jesus did not return. And eventually, some local rowdies set fire, set fire to the haystack, and so the brethren needed to come down, and they were keenly disappointed that God did not answer their prayers for the return of Christ as they waited on their haystack closer to heaven. Now, undeterred by his calculations, Reverend Thurman then rescheduled the end of the world for a month later, on October the 28th, 1868. And when that didn't happen, he rescheduled again on October the 17th, 1869, or, eight, yes, 1869. And then, April 19, 1875. Finally, Reverend Thurman died a poor and a broken man in 1906, meanwhile proclaiming that the world would end in 1917. Now, when Jesus was on this earth teaching and preaching, the disciples asked him in Matthew 24, when will this be and what will be the sign of your coming. And later in the chapter, Jesus told them that even he did not know when he would be returning to the earth, when he would be coming in the clouds as King of Kings and as Lord of Lords. Matthew 24, 36. However, no one knows the day or the hour when these things will happen. Not even the angels in heaven or the Son himself. 
And then he gives these key words to the disciples and to us today. Only the Father knows. Yes, the day of the Lord will come. And Paul and his colleagues, or the writing team, as I call them later in my sermon, the writing team, Paul and Silvanus, uh, the writing team, say they do not need to know, need to write about the times and the seasons. And Timothy also was included in the writing team. And so they make a similar claim also in verse 9 in chapter 4. We don't need to write to you about the importance of loving each other, for God himself has taught you to love one another. And in both situations, in both here in this chapter, in chapter 5, also in chapter 4, verse 9, he goes on then, and even though he says, I don't need to write to you, he goes on then and further gives additional explanation. And he does write to them. Jacob Elias commenting on this passage and, and this fact that he says, I don't need to write to you, and yet he does, says, quote, ancient letters frequently employ such language to urge the readers to claim the truth that they already know and remind them to live accordingly, end of quote. So perhaps one of the reasons that Paul says we don't need to write to you about this we don't need to tell you or write to you about, in this case that we're looking at today, in this chapter, the times and the seasons, is he, they may have already been teaching them before they needed to leave town so quickly. So we might ask, what are the times and the seasons? What are the times and the seasons? And at the heart of this phrase are two Greek words for time. And these two Greek words are chronos, which usually signifies duration of time, and kairos, which signifies a right or an opportune time. So the chronos would be the length of time. For instance, how long does it take to drive from this place, from here in Lancaster County, to Chicago, Illinois? We, that would be a chronos time. Or if we say, this is the right time to do this, in our lives, or this is the right time to, to be involved in this particular project in the, in the congregation. It's a kairos moment, an opportune time, the right time that we sense by the Spirit of God to do this work. So Paul says, the day of the Lord will come. And this day of the Lord, this expression was used back in the Old Testament, for instance, in the book of Amos. And the Apostle Paul is using this to signify this is the time or the day that Jesus will come back to this earth. And the missionary team, Paul and Timothy and Silas, suggest three word pictures. And the first one is that the day of the Lord cannot be predicted as to when it will take place. Instead, Paul says, the day of the Lord will be like a thief that comes in the night. 
a thief that comes in the night. Back in 2006, Anne and I had the privilege and the opportunity while I was on sabbatical to live in the country of in San Jose, Costa Rica for two months as we were studying Spanish and learning a different culture. And anyway, uh, we were warned as we lived there with a host mother and her children that thievery was a major problem. And it becomes dark every night at, or every evening at 5.30. They're close to the equator. They don't have the change in seasons and the change in the length of the day. It promptly at 5.30, it's dark in the evening. And so we were sure not to be out on the streets after, or be walking on the streets after 5.30 because of the possibility of being robbed. Also, the really nice houses, the good houses, had metal fences with gates that were locked uh, to protect them from thieves from breaking through and stealing. And, and Jesus says in another parable in, in Mark 13, you too must keep watch, for you don't know in this parable, it's the master of the household who returns. In the evening, at midnight, or before dawn, or at daybreak. And Jesus tells the disciples, don't let him find you sleeping when he arrives without warning. I say to you what I say to everyone, watch for him. During this study, or as uh, preparation for these sermons, I did use Beth Moore, the consulted Uh, what Beth Moore had to say, and uh, she tells a story in her book about Sue and Jim, who were awakened at 3 a.m. to the sound of crashing glass on the floor below their bedroom. And that, of course, made them suddenly become awake, even though it was 3 in the morning. And a few days earlier, their pastor and a neighbor had told them that there were thieves, that there's some burglaries in the neighborhood. And so Sue and Jim, one evening, had discussed a run-through, kind of how they would respond and what they would do if a burglar would come into their home. So they put the what-ifs into place in this reality situation. And Jim flew down the hall and tucked the kids into a closet. And meanwhile, Sue dialed 911 to the sound of burglars coming coming through their door, breaking down their door, and coming into their first floor of their home. And she dropped to her knees and pleaded the blood of Jesus. And the story then, as, as Beth describes it, the story did have a good ending in the fact that no one was hurt and injured. So the first word picture is the time cannot be predicted. Instead, Jesus will come like a thief in the night. The second picture is that do not be lulled to sleep by the fact that though there are those who are proclaiming peace and security, to the general public. There were citizens of the empire 
who were continuing to proclaim peace, citizens of the Roman Empire who continued to proclaim peace, and their peace would not last because it was built on military might. The prophet Jeremiah gives a similar warning in Jeremiah 6.14. They give assurances of peace when there is no peace, the prophet says. The third picture is that the day of the Lord is inevitable, like the labor pangs of a pregnant woman. The pangs continue until the birth of an infant takes place. The day of the Lord is inevitable. And Jesus also uses this imagery in Matthew 24, 8, when Jesus says, but all this is only the first of the birth pangs with more to come. But Paul then says, the day of the Lord doesn't need to surprise you. The time of Christ's return doesn't need to surprise you. You are children of the day. You are walking in the light. You are people of the light. You are living in the light and not in the darkness. The day of the Lord, Paul says, will not sleep, sneak up on you because they are living in the light of God. And this is emphasized in verses 4 and 5. But you aren't in the dark about these things, dear brothers and sisters. And you won't be surprised when the day of the Lord comes like a thief. For you are children of the light and of the day. We don't belong to darkness and night. Now, let's, as Jacob Elias, the commentator, points out, this passage has a number of contrasts. And so I've developed this chart that, that I received from uh, Jake Elias the, the different contrasts that are in this passage, it's filled with them. So in verse 2, we have the day of the Lord, and in contrast, the thief in the night. That We have peace and security and sudden destruction in verse 3. In verse 4, we have the contrast of darkness and day, and then children of the light and, and of the day. And then he says, in opposite of that, not of the night and not of darkness, he talks about falling asleep, and in verse 6, to stay awake and be sober. He mentions in verses 7 and 8, to be sober, and in contrast, to get drunk. Get the, those who get drunk, get drunk at night. He, again, he talks in verses 7 and 8 about night and day. And in verse 9, wrath and salvation. God has not destined us for wrath, but for salvation. And then again in verse 10, awake and asleep. And then Jesus died for us. In verse 10, Jesus died for us so that we may live with him forever and ever. It's, it's amazing the number of contrasts in those brief 11 verses the contrast that the writing team uses to point up the difference between the children of the day 
or the children of light and the children of darkness. So in verses 6 to 8, the team gives some instructions as to how they are to live, some exhortations. They're instructed to stay awake and to be sober. People sleep at night and get drunk at night, and falling asleep means to lapse into a spiritual or kind of moral laxity, uh, a decay, falling asleep. And many of these believers have come from a a climate uh, and culture of spiritual and moral degradation. And next Sunday we'll look in more detail what Paul has to say about that in chapter 4 as they come out of that kind of culture and have come now into the, the light of God. And therefore, Paul says, let us keep awake. They challenge us to keep awake and to keep the work of God in our midst. Now, he's not calling the Thessalonians to, uh, to insomnia and saying that you should never sleep. Instead, he's, he's using this metaphorically to stay awake to the work of God in your midst as being children of the light and children of the day. Stay awake to what God is doing, what God is doing in your world and in your life. And also to stay on guard as to how you live. To be sure that your life and the actions of your life match up with your words. That's what he's telling the believers at Thessalonica. Again, quoting Jake Elias, the central concern is clear. Paul and his companions want to impress on the believers that how they live needs to be guided by who they are. Moral conduct must correspond to their eschatological and in parentheses I put the words end time, the eschatological status. Children of the day need to stay awake and be sober, end of quote. Now Paul then says that if we are children of the light, then we also, and if the Thessalonians are children of the light, which he says that they are, then they need to put on the armor of God just like they need to put off certain characteristics and need to put on. And Paul uses this expression in a number of, in some of his other books, where he says, this is what you are to put on, and this is what you are to take off, like one would take off a suit of clothing and not wear them any longer. Here, Paul and his co-workers call for the believers to put on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. So, Paul and his co-workers are calling the Thessalonians and are calling us to put on this triad of faith, love, and hope, or faith, hope, and love, which were already introduced in the first chapter in this book, of faith, hope, and love. Probably the most uh, recognizable 
triad, the most recognizable place where he uses this is in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, where Paul says to the Corinthians, now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but you can finish, you probably finish it, the greatest of these is love. And in this first chapter, the writers commended the believers for their work of faith, for their labor of love, and their steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. The Thessalonian believers who live in the light and are children of the day do not stand around waiting for the day of the Lord. They don't, like the, church, like the brethren, go up on a haystack waiting for the day of the Lord. Instead, they're called to take the offensive with their armor and to engage in the work of love. Thomas Yoder Neufeld suggests that their stance rather is, quote, that of the divine combatant ready to seize every opportunity of the warfare of love, every opportunity of the warfare of love. And then this section ends in verse 8 with a pastoral emphasis and concern where he says, for God has destined us not for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, whether we are awake or asleep, we may live with him. So God, as we experience salvation, as we live in the light, God has given us salvation. And so that whether we are awake or alive, or whether we are asleep or dead at the coming of Christ, if we are children of the day, we will live with Christ and reign with Christ forever and ever. Now, how might we apply this passage? This passage that was written so long ago how might we apply it to our day? Bible scholars and teachers of sermon preparation call this crossing the hermeneutical bridge. How do we apply this teaching into our day and our time for our congregation? One, we as a congregation and as individuals are called, I would suggest, to practice the warfare of love. We're on the right track as we seek to minister to the people in this area, to the people in our local East Petersburg community. We're called to minister to those who do not have enough to eat, to those who do not have adequate heat and shelter. We are called to do that. We're called to relate to and build relationships with others around us, with others whom we come in contact with. Conrad Kanegi and his colleagues observed that the churches in the global south practice holistic ministry, and I would suggest we should do also, without a distinction between word, deed, and being. He goes on and he says, he explains that they talk about Plant, church planting, or about planting other churches, 
and link this to ministry to those which have HIV, HIV and AIDS. They are invited in both a global mission and a local ministry as they reach others with the good news of Jesus. So I would suggest that we need to continue as we are doing, that in the violence of our world, in the hatred that we practice the ministry of giving to others, giving gift cards for food and gasoline. In we are in the trenches of the warfare of love as we are involved in sharing rides to a doctor's office when a person needs that. We express the warfare of love when we give of our time and energy to the Foods Resource Bank, as we've heard from Larry this morning. Secondly, as we live in the light, we are called to be Christ's ambassadors. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.20, so we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. So again, we don't sit around waiting for the return of Christ. Or we don't climb a haystack so that we're closer to heaven waiting for the return of Jesus, imploring God to end the world. But instead, we continue to work in the warfare of love and continue to live out and proclaim the reality of the kingdom. Peter says that God is being patient for our sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. A very key book that I've read in the last number of years has been the book by, by Heidi Newmark. And she was called by God to reflect the hope of God as she served as a pastor of the Transfiguration Lutheran Church in the South Bronx in Bronx in New York City. And she describes in her book, she describes visiting Lucy who lived up on the ninth floor apartment. And she describes what she saw on the graffiti in the elevators. And then she said, quote, in these buildings, one goes and comes surrounded by the violent assaults and stench of Babylon, a biblical city of corruption. The pool of urine left in the elevator left no place to stand. So I walked the nine floors to her apartment and thought of Lucy's homecomings, having to decide whether to stand in the urine or to walk with swollen legs up the stairs and in her visit, Lucy talked about feeling helpless. And she said that when she wakes in the morning, she tells her pastor, and she thinks about getting up, she can barely open her eyes. End quote. We too, my sisters and brothers, are called to bring the good news of Christ into seemingly hopeless and desperate situations. 
we too are called to walk in the light so that others also may walk in the light. We know that the Lord is coming and we do not need to climb a haystack and wait for the return of Christ. Instead, we carry out our warfare of love as we pour ourselves into deeds of love and justice and mercy and to all our neighbors, all those whom we meet. We carry out the warfare of love with those whose God brings across our path.